As we consider 2 Thessalonians chapter number 1 in these verses, we are considering that phrase we looked at last week, being counted worthy. The Apostle Paul here, as he's writing to the Thessalonians, he's reminding them of their persecutions and he's reminding them of patience that they need to be showing even in the midst of trial and affliction. Now, by way of review, last week we, we learned a twofold lesson regarding God's righteous judgment. Those two points were this. Number one, the believer whose faith in Christ and love for the gospel brings upon him the wrath of the wicked now will one day be exalted and glorified. In other words, the believer who has faith in Christ today and has a love for the gospel, even though that individual is experiencing the wrath of the wicked today, one day exaltation and glorification will come. Number two, the wicked who appear to prosper now, who walk in pride, walk in unbelief, have no fear of God, have no fear of His wrath, who even mock and despise the grace of God, will one day be brought down. All of these things, friends, will be made right at the second coming of Christ. At the second coming of Christ, everything will be set right. Perfect justice will be set. And all these things are meant to bring us a comfort and an assurance even in the difficult times in which the Thessalonians were living. The Apostle Paul was not writing to believers who did not know what it was to suffer persecution. They knew exactly what it was. They were experiencing it themselves. And Paul in these verses, in verses 6 through 10, gives them great comforting words. He begins to remind them that though you suffer now, remember, it is a righteous thing with God if you suffer now. Remember, we learned a little bit last week that being counted worthy of the kingdom of God, it is a manifest token of the righteousness of God. When you suffer for the cause of Christ, you are demonstrating that you are in fact counted worthy of the kingdom of God. We see there in verse number 6, Paul continues that line of thinking that we read in verses 1 through 5, and he calls this suffering seeing it is a righteous thing with God. What is this righteous thing? This righteous thing is the righteous judgment of God that they were counted worthy of in verse number 5. It is a righteous thing to suffer with the righteous. It justifies the reality that as we suffer with God, it is a righteous thing with God. Namely, he says, seeing it is, or literally, it is a righteous thing in the estimation of God when you suffer with God and for the kingdom of God. Our own natural feeling is that suffering and affliction is contrary to God, but in reality, it confirms that being counted worthy. Counted worthy of the kingdom of God leads us to understand that if we're counted worthy of the kingdom of God, we are also counted worthy of the glory of His power. And that's really the secret to what Paul's teaching here today. The glory of His power. What is that glory? 
Well, notice that Paul continues in verse number 6 as he says that it's a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Notice that phrase, to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. The word recompense means to pay back in kind affliction. In other words, what man does to you, they will ultimately be paid back in kind for their affliction that they've put upon you. Notice he says those who trouble you. It is a fearful thing. Understand, friends, this morning. It is a fearful thing for those who are not of God to trouble those who are of God. When you see the unbeliever troubling the believer in God, it is not a light thing. It is a serious matter. And God says, I will pay back in kind those who trouble you. Those who are suffering It is a righteous thing with God. We understand that God is just. Therefore, because God is perfectly just, He will worthily punish the unjust. And one day, God will fully do away with the miseries of His people. It's hard for you and I to understand today, but one day we will be without misery. We will be without suffering. We will be without affliction. We will be without trouble. There will be no enemies of the cross. There will be no one who will be troubling you for your stand in Christ. But Paul's reminding them that that day when he wrote to them is still out. And friends, today I would tell you that day of Jesus Christ coming again is still away from us as we sit here today. It's interesting that in Romans chapter number 2, verse number 9, the Apostle Paul used the same word for tribulation in that verse. You don't have to turn here, but here's what it says in Romans 2, 9. He says, Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. Paul uses the same word in 2 Thessalonians 1.6 regarding tribulation that he does in Romans 2.9. And the same word for tribulation or trouble is used to demonstrate the woe that will be brought upon those who do evil towards those who are good. Paul is speaking of the same judgment. He's speaking in the same judgment in Romans 2.9 that he is in 2 Thessalonians 1.6 that when their payback day comes, it will be done in perfect righteous judgment. Paul understands what the Thessalonians were going through. In verse number 7 of our text, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7, he says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. To be troubled can often be defined by being in a time of distress or affliction. Notice what he says. Rest with us. Folks, there is still a rest to be found in God. But to find rest in God doesn't mean that we will be without suffering. We know God the Father had only one Son. That son who was without sin, yet that son suffered greatly for the cause of God. We've dealt with this before, but in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, we see the promise that is made to all who will live godly. 
It tells us this, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. In other words, when we are troubled, when we're suffering, all who are godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We will suffer at the hands of evildoers, but Jesus is our place of rest. John 16, 33, when Jesus was talking to his disciples, he reminded them of that great truth himself. He says in John 16, 33, he says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Paul was not just giving them a series of rah-rah speeches. Paul wanted his people that were reading his letter to be comforted in the truths and the reality of the Word of God. He wanted them to rest in God. Today, it's difficult for us to sometime understand and to realize that one day Christ is going to come from heaven. He is going to descend as a redeemer to claim his own people, to claim his bride. And when he comes, he is coming to judge the world righteously. You and I are incapable of total non-objective righteous judgment. In other words, we view things through a perspective of our own eyes. God's judgment is always righteous, it's always perfect, and it's always right. So what is Paul trying to remind them of? He's reminding them to do not judge their circumstances, do not judge their situation through the eyes of their own understanding, but judge them through what the Bible has already declared to be the truth. Folks, there is nothing you and I can do to find rest in and of ourselves, no matter what our circumstances are. But if we will trust God and we will trust in His Word and believe His promises, there is a rest to be found even in the midst of great affliction and great trouble and great sorrow. Notice he says back in our text in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with mighty angels. Paul represents the coming of Christ as a terrible time for unbelievers, but a time of rejoicing for those in Christ. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, rest with us in this truth. Jesus Christ is coming again. There are no more hopeful words for you as a believer today that you could hear than Jesus Christ is coming again and He will set all things right. He will make all things right. And He'll be accompanied by His mighty angels. Those angels are the angels who declare the majesty of Christ. What will He do when He comes again? The Bible tells us He will gather His elect from every corner of the world and He will cast the wicked into hell. Matthew 13 and Matthew 24. If you'll turn with me to Matthew 13, I want you to see this text for yourself. Matthew 13, verses 41 and 42. Dealing with the Son of Man as He comes with His angels. This is what Paul was referring to. 
Matthew 13, verse 41. He's been, Jesus has been talking here about the wheat and the tares. And He's telling them a parable. And He talks about the field of the world in verse 38. The good seed of the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. He talks about the enemy that sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. This is what Paul is talking about. He says in verse 40, As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. For those who hear that truth today, that is a great point of rejoicing. If you hear the truth that the righteous shall shine forth as the sun, that is glorious truth. The ears that hear that truth are those that are counted worthy of the kingdom of God and those who can claim being counted worthy at the glory of His power. If you hear that truth today, you know that through Christ you have been counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Matthew 24, verse 31. The same line of thinking. tells us in verse number 31, And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn a parable of the fig tree, when his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away. And here's what I want you to see. But my word shall not pass away. The words that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians are the same words that we read today and we find great comfort. Paul is strengthening and encouraging them by these means. That the condition of this present world and the present state that is and the state that is to come, Paul knew what it was to suffer for the cause of Christ. We would have a hard time believing the words of a man who didn't know what it was to suffer. I believe that's one of the reasons that God used the Apostle Paul so greatly as he put him through the fire and the furnace of affliction. And when he writes, he says, I know what it is to be going through what you're going through. He doesn't say, I think I know. He says, I know, church, I know what you're going through. A most glorious description of the second coming of Christ sets every present misery of what we see today. And that is where we find our hope. Don't ever fail to think, to meditate upon the second coming of Christ. It has disappeared from many pulpits. Folks, when you don't know the trouble and the tribulation and the sorrow and the affliction. The greatest hope you have as a child of God is one day Jesus Christ is coming again and He is going to set all things right. When I see out on the landscape and I am burdened and I'm, and I'm discouraged and I'm despondent and I say, what is the world coming to? I say, Jesus Christ is coming again. 
There is nothing this world can do to take the reality of his glorious return and then to be told that when he comes again, he will be glorified in his saints. I can't even begin to fully comprehend what Paul is saying. And yet he says when he comes again, he will be glorified in his saints. Verse number 8 of 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul uses very descriptive Verbiage, he says, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. The nature of that fire, we have no real clue definitively what that fire is. But often throughout Scripture, when you see the use of the word fire or flame, it most, at most times is used to describe the anger of God or the pouring out of God's wrath. There are two things we need to make note of that in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know God, that tells us two things about God and His vengeance. Number one, we know that God, we just read, God will vindicate or deliver His elect. They will be delivered. In Luke 18, verses 7 through 8, these words are spoken about this vindication of the elect. Luke 18, verses 7 and 8, here's what it says, And shall not God avenge His own elect, which cry day and night unto Him, though He bear long with them? I tell you that He will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall He find faith on the earth. Friends, vengeance is not ours. Vengeance does not belong to us. We're not even to desire our own vengeance, but rather we desire the good of all. Vengeance belongs to God, Romans 12, 19, and Hebrews 10, verses 30 through 31. What does it say about the vengeance of God? Well, number one, we know that only God is the rightful owner of vengeance. Romans 12, verse 19 says this, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And here's one of those challenging verses we looked at when we studied the book of Romans. Therefore, because vengeance is not yours, therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Imagine if we started our days being reminded of that final verse. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't seek vengeance. Vengeance does not belong to you. It doesn't belong to me. We don't have the right to avenge ourselves even when we're suffering for the cause of Christ. We don't have the right to do that. God says, I'll repay your affliction. I'll repay your tribulation. And I'll repay it in kind. Hebrews 10, verses 30 through 31 says, For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If God cannot avenge his own, you and I are people most hopeless today. But God says, Vengeance is mine, I will 
repay. Here's a great truth we need to understand about God's vengeance. God inflicts vengeance with a view to His own glory, not just for our sake. Oftentimes, we claim God's vengeance as being for our sake. No, God's vengeance is with a view of His own glory. In other words, when God comes to avenge His elect, He's not so much coming for your sake as He is for His own glory. Now, that's a great truth we need to understand. Oftentimes, we say, God will avenge me. That's not the purpose of His vengeance. His purpose is His own glory. When Jesus Christ comes again and with righteous judgment, He's not coming just so we can say, vengeance is ours. No, He's coming for His own glory. We're told that the wrath, this flaming fire of vengeance, will fall upon those who know not God. But He says a second thing, and we'll talk about this in a moment, and believe not the gospel of Christ. So there's a connection between knowing God and believing the gospel of Christ. Remember in our study in the book of John, Jesus in John 17.3 said this, And this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. I have glorified Thee on the earth. I have finished the work which Thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify Thou me with Thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. What is it that brings the wrath of God? What is it that brings this flaming fire, this vengeance? It is ignorance of God and contempt of the gospel. Those today who have a contempt for the gospel are facing the eternal wrath and vengeance of God. There is no knowledge. There's no knowledge of God unto salvation without the gospel of Christ. Notice Paul in our text. He makes the connection between those that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is it to obey the gospel? Well, first of all, we need to understand that the gospel must be accepted, the gospel must be believed, and the gospel must be obeyed. That's what Peter meant in 1 Peter chapter 4 when he wrote regarding the gospel and what it is to receive it. 1 Peter 4 verse 17, he says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? If you and I are going to face our own judgment with what we did with God, what will the end be of those who did not obey the gospel of God? Imagine this for a moment. The call of the gospel is not an invitation. The call of the gospel is a divine command that requires full surrender to God through the peace that is found in Jesus Christ alone. When we preach the gospel, we are not giving an invitation to accept it. We are commanding all men to repent and to believe. Yet, Paul writes to the Thessalonians about the promise that those who obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will be the recipients of this flaming fire of vengeance. 
These are sobering words, friends. These are, these are not words that we read and, and we shout and say, Boy, I'm, I'm glad God's going. We should not even hope for vengeance on our enemies. That's not our place. Our hope for our enemies, even as we read, when your enemy is hungry, give him food. When your enemy is thirsty, give him water. This vengeance is not just physical vengeance. This is vengeance that we take upon ourselves to say, listen, I wish bad things upon people. Why? Because God says vengeance is mine. You are to rest in the promise of the second coming of Christ. Folks, if you can't rest today, if you are unsettled, if everything you see that's going on in the world today has just got you restless and uptight, I'm telling you today, rest in the promise of the second coming of Christ. That's where rest is found. You're not going to find rest anywhere else apart from God. And I believe with every fiber of my being as I'm standing here, more restless times are coming. This is not it, folks. Get our eyes on the coming of Christ. Be reminded of who He is. Be reminded of what He's done. Be thankful that He's counted you worthy for the kingdom of God, not because of any merits of your own, but because He loved you and gave His Son to shed His blood for you. If there was not the promise of the second coming of Christ, we would be people who should be very, very fearful. But Paul continues this sobering word by saying in verse 9, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction. The nature of God's wrath and the nature of God's vengeance upon those who obey not the gospel is everlasting destruction. And notice how he describes it. Everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Everlasting destruction. What does it mean to have everlasting destruction? It means it's destruction without end. We know the Bible teaches that hell is not a place that man, sinful man, is cast into, experiences a few minutes or a few, even a few hours or even a few years of intense, excruciating pain. No, it is for an eternity. We're not talking about a few minutes of pain. We're talking about eternal destruction that never ends. It's undying death. It, it's eternal banishment from the presence of the Lord. You see, the bonds of death and the bonds of sin and the bonds of the punishment for the wages of sin is the very opposite of the glory of Jesus Christ. Just like there is no end to everlasting punishment, there's also no end to our everlasting glory that we'll experience with Christ. You and I, who are in the kingdom of God, who are being counted worthy of the glory of His power, who are looking forward to His return, we have a great promise of knowing that this state that we're going to will never end. I cannot imagine. I can't imagine a day 
not being concerned about affliction, not being concerned about tribulation, not being anxious for the safety of my own family, not being worried and anxious about the things that I see on the television and on the computer, and knowing that I'm in a perfect eternal state with the one who died for me. That's what the second coming of Christ is going to bring. It's a fearful doctrine. Eternal punishment is not a popular doctrine. You won't find it preached a single time in a prosperity gospel church. You won't find them talking about the realities of hell. You won't find them talking about the realities of eternal punishment. You'll only find them saying, here's the way that you can have your best life now. Paul never once says your best life is now. What Paul says, I want to give you assurance and comfort. The burdened Thessalonian Christians, all the weight, there's a final and perfect justice coming, and it's coming the moment the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. And all at the same time, Paul's telling people who are suffering at the hands of others, do not take personal revenge on those who harm you. By the way, those Christians and the Thessalonians we're reading about, they were suffering great atrocities for their faith. What's Paul teaching them? Paul's teaching, don't trust yourselves. Instead, trust unto God who always judges rightly. And when Jesus Christ comes again, all things will be made right. And that brings us to the verse we began with. When He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe. What's interesting about the second coming of Christ is that when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe. Here's the reality. He will be glorified and He will be admired of all, but He will not have this glory only for Himself. It will be common to every believer. The Bible tells us there, He comes and will be glorified in His saints. This is, a, this is a deep truth. Right now, believers, and, and folks, you're seeing this. Christians are being counted as less than worthless. Churches are being disregarded as being unimportant, unnecessary. You don't need them. Christians... And the hatred towards Christians, the venom is getting stronger and stronger. And yet, you may be counted vile now. You may be counted less than worthless now. But there's coming a day that you will be the most precious possession that Christ has when He comes forth and He comes forth and He's glorified in you, saints who've suffered. I love what Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 2 regarding this coming again. And he describes exactly what he's telling the Thessalonians in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. And this is, of course, the saved by grace chapter. We all know verses 1 through 5, or 1 through 4, being rich in mercy for his great love. And we all know verse number eight, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. But between verse number four and verse number eight, here's this great truth. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. 
Now notice Paul's words. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus that you are already as good as seated in heavenly places. You're already as good as there. And a matter of fact, he's not just talking hypothetically. He's telling them you are already seated because you're in Christ Jesus. Here it is. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Friends, do you know how kind Christ has been to you? Do you really understand his kindness? I'm not talking about human kindness when somebody holds a door for us and we say that was very kind of you. Do you understand what kindness Christ had to extend to worthless, depraved sinners? The gospel is not just like God held a door open so that we could get into heaven. The kindness that had to have been extended was kindness that could only be sent from a perfect God. But notice what Paul told them about this glory when Christ came. He uses this terminology because our testimony among you was believed. In other words, Paul says you can claim these promises because you believed the gospel. In other words, Paul says you will be numbered among the saints because you believe the gospel. Somebody might say, I want to be there for that day. I want to be the one that is glorified in His saints. What must I do? You must repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ alone. That is a commandment of an omnipotent God. Kindness is at your doorstep. Christ has said, all who will come unto me, I will in no wise cast out. None are restricted from the command of the gospel. Yet notice that phrase. In that day. The last three words of that verse. In that day. What is that day? That day is the day of the Lord. It is the day in which Paul, as we finished our exposition on 1 Thessalonians a while back, we finished with it and want to return to it back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning there in verse number 1. This is what Paul's talking about in verse number 10 of 2 Thessalonians 1. He's repeating what he said at the end of the first epistle. Verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians 5. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that 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 day should overtake you as a thief. 
Notice for one, that day of the Lord will overtake those who do not know the Lord as a thief. But he says, you're not brethren of darkness. That day will not overtake you as a thief. Why? Because you know it's coming. I love that. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Now here it is. That whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. The comfort of the world says everything's going to get better. That's not the comfort of a believer. If you're trying to find your, if you're holding on every day, right now, let's just, let's put this right where the rubber meets the road. If you're holding on every day that I just got to hear, this is coming to an end, you're putting your comfort in the wrong place. Your comfort as a saint, your comfort as a child of God is found in the reality that you have been given the free grace, the free gift of the grace of God and his salvation. You've been redeemed from your sin and that one day he's coming and he's coming to claim you and he's taking you with him. Jesus Christ is coming again to make all things right. Modern Christianity is trying to find its hope in what the world does. Biblical Christianity finds its hope in what Christ is going to do. Right? Modern Christianity says, what's going? My hope is here. No, our hope is in what Christ is going to do. I already have comfort in what He's done, but my hope going forward is what He's about to do. When He comes again, imagine in that day, He'll come for His saints. And as Paul had mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 3.13, when he said this, to that end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Can you imagine when he comes to get us, we will be fully sanctified people. That's why we will be glorified. He will be glorified in us because at his coming again, we will be fully sanctified people. Men, that struggle we talked about yesterday about sanctification, that process we all said, why couldn't we just be saved and already be fully sanctified? Guess what? At His coming, it will be. You will be fully sanctified. We will experience that. That is where our hope is found. The children of God will be counted worthy of the glory of His power. Why are we counted worthy of the glory of His power? By the faith which we have in the gospel. How did we come about this gospel? The word was preached to us. Folks, somewhere along the line, you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. It may not have been in this church. It may not have been in your previous church. It may have been... 
churches ago or years ago. But the reason you are in the body of Christ is because you heard the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You heard the command, repent and believe the Gospel. And today, if you repented of your sin, you believe the Gospel of Jesus Christ, you are counted not only worthy of the Kingdom of God, but you are also counted worthy of the glory of His power. When He comes again, what a difference there's going to be between the first coming of the Lord and the second. When Jesus Christ came the first time, He came in humility. He came to suffer, to be despised, to be rejected of men. But when He comes the second time, He will come in an unparalleled majesty and in unparalleled glory. The first time He came to die for sinners. He came to die a shameful death. But imagine when He comes the second time, what a change is going to take place in you and I. We're not talking about superficial change here, folks. We're talking about change that only the Gospel can do. We know what John said in 1 John 3, 2. I love this. He says, Now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. I wish I could give you words to describe all that that means, and I can't. I can't even begin to describe to you all that we shall be. There's not enough words in the human language to describe what we shall be. But we do know that His revelation, when He comes again, it will be our revelation. In that day, when He is revealed in all of His glory, then His saints will also be revealed and be glorified in Him. I've often thought when the Lord comes again, and again, this is probably my flesh speaking, and I I say that in advance, how many will we be surprised we're never in Him? Will the second coming of the Lord reveal those who were just Christians of convenience? Christians who were fine when society and everything goes right, but when trials and struggle came, they fled away. I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. Throughout history, there's always been a purging of God's church. I can't explain it to you. But this is not the first season of falling away that we're seeing. And if your eyes are open, this worldwide epidemic has caused a great falling away of the faith. There are people who were once believers who aren't coming back. And I don't mean church attendance, folks. They're not coming back to the things of God. Their faith was put to the fire and they burned up. Because their faith was not in Christ, their faith was in some superficial Christianity that had no ability to hold them and had no ability to comfort when real trouble came. I think we'll all be very, very shocked when we realize that it's one thing to say we believe the gospel, it's another thing to truly be in Christ. That's why we're very careful about pronouncing you saved. That's why we're very careful about saying, what did you do? What did you say? Where did you go? 
A child of God who's surely been saved knows they're saved because they have the assurance of the Holy Spirit. It's not for me to declare to you whether you're in the faith or not. You say, I need your assurance. No. If you're in the faith, you have the assurance of the Holy Spirit of God telling you, you are, you have been counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Not because of your own righteousness, because those are filthy rags, but because of the righteousness that's found in Jesus Christ alone. Imagine that his saints shall be glorified in him when he comes again. All glory be to God. I want to finish with our Valley of Vision 284. I think this is an appropriate reading for today. Page 284, or if you're on a different page number, it's entitled Privileges. It's in chapter number 7. And I think it's so, so appropriate for what we've talked about, not only during our Bible study time, but now during this, this time together. He says, O oh Lord God, teach me to know that grace precedes, accompanies, and follows my salvation, that it sustains the redeemed soul, that not one link of its chain can ever break. From Calvary's cross, wave upon wave of grace reaches me, deals with my sin, washes me clean, renews my heart, strengthens my will, draws out my affection, kindles a flame in my soul, rules throughout my inner man, consecrates my every thought, word, work, teaches me thy immeasurable love. How great are my privileges in Christ Jesus. Without Him I stand far off, a stranger, an outcast. In Him I draw near and touch His kingly scepter. Without Him I dare not lift up my guilty eyes. In Him I gaze upon my Father God and friend. Without Him I hide my lips in trembling shame. In Him I open my mouth in petition and praise. Without Him all is wrath and consuming fire. In Him is all love and the repose of my soul. Without Him is gaping hell below me and eternal anguish. In Him its gates are barred to me by His precious blood. Without Him darkness spreads its horrors in front. In Him an eternity of glory is my boundless horizon. Without Him all within me is terror and dismay. In Him every accusation is charmed into joy and peace. Without Him all things external call for my condemnation. In Him they minister to my comfort and are to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. Praise be to thee for grace and for the unspeakable gift of Jesus. Let's stand together. Our Heavenly Father, we know today we are unworthy of a single benefit and a single privilege that's been given from you. But in your great mercy and according to your purposes and plan, you have called out a people and called them unto yourself. A people that cannot find any single reason as to why we've been counted worthy. But Lord, I pray that you would remind us today that our only worthiness is found in Jesus Christ and what he's done. May we rejoice in that wonderful gift of salvation. May we live not in fear, not in dismay and discouragement, but may we live in the victory that is promised. May we live with our eyes to the, the return of Christ. And what a glorious day that will be. Help us to think on 
and consider and meditate upon this truth that when He comes again, He will be glorified and be admired, especially by those who are in Him. Father, we pray now that as we leave this place today, may we not forget the truths that we've been reminded of today. Help us not to forget the promises and the comfort and the assurance that is found in your word. We ask now that you'll go with us or help us to be witnesses to your majesty. Help us to be courageous and bold, even as the world around us moves further and further away from the things of God. Help us to remember that vengeance is not ours. Vengeance belongs to you and you alone. And one day, one glorious day, all things will be made right. Dismiss us now with thy blessing. And it's in Christ's name that we ask these things and for his sake. Amen. All right. Lord bless you. Thank you for being here today. We appreciate it very much. And we look forward to seeing you on Wednesday night. Thank you.